Hello, San Diego. Hope you're hanging in there okay. This is Abby Hamblin. And I'm Christy Totten. And yes, we do hope that you're staying safe and healthy. Our guest on this episode of Name Drop San Diego has a huge resume, but we're going to try to give you some of the highlights. Lynn Reeser has been chief economist for Point Loma Nazarene University's Vermanian Business and Economic Institute since 2009. She's written a number of influential reports for policymakers across San Diego County, including a 2015 report on the cost of housing construction, which is highly cited. Before coming to PLNU, Dr. Reeser was a chief economist for Wells Fargo and Bank of America. She served on some amazing boards and organizations too, including the Council of Economic Advisors for California's Treasurer. Here's our interview with Lynn Reeser. How did you very first get into economics? What interested you and really pulled you in? Well, it was my first class in college, actually, at UCLA. I'd never really taken economics before, uh, but I took a class in macroeconomics, and it talked about working with the economy to improve the situation for families and individuals. And I thought, this is really cool stuff. I can actually make a difference. And I thought that it would actually be great to be chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Now, in retrospect, I think it's way too political, <laughs> but uh, the uh, dream continued and I took microeconomics and it was at UCLA, it was taught in a very real world context. So it was all about explaining why people out on Westwood Boulevard were behaving like they did and uh, how we respond to incentives and how we act in business and personal relationships. And so it was very meaningful. And so I was, I was hooked. <laughs> That's really interesting, uh, you know, talking about changing the world. How, how did you want to change the world at that time? What were your ideas back then? Well, I guess we're all idealists and I still continue to be one. I just, you know, wanted it to be better for individuals and animals and just somehow make things better. And also economics provides a, a lens to understand the world. It brings together all of the disciplines of geography, science, politics, everything. And it, it all puts it together and helps you to understand what's happening around you. So I had read you know, a lot about the philosophers uh, you know, every, everyone from some of the philosophical work Thomas Jefferson had written or Hume or many of the great philosophers, and it all seemed to resonate well in the field of economics. Are you someone who studies economics historically, like going back to the founders and reading up on any of that sort of monetary policy from way <laughs> back? Well, I I did take a course in the history of economics, and they used to call it the some of my friends call it the history of dead economists. <laughs> oh. I'm not a I'm not a big uh, economic historian. Um, I I do read history, uh, but I I'm not really embedded. I I rather be engaged more in what's happening here and now because economics, as I tell my students, it's like they're sitting in the front row seat of an amazing period of change in the economy and 
there is no textbook that we actually don't use a textbook for macroeconomics. We use the Wall Street Journal and Economist Magazine and other sources, UT, <laughs> and and we basically look at it from that point of view because, for instance, the Federal Reserve is writing the rules as it goes. Um, we're tr just trying to understand, you know, we thought there were limits on our debt, how la large it could be. And it turns out we're breaking those barriers and you know, interest rates are low. So there are a lot of unknowns, just as we see unknowns in, in medicine broken every day with the vaccine. I read an article about you in the UT where you described your job as putting together a puzzle every day, only coming back, you know, the next morning to find it, you know, taken apart and having to put it together again. So, like, what are the pieces that you use to do your job on a daily basis as an economist? Well, every day you wake up and there is some new development happening somewhere in the world. And the challenge is to understand what that means. For instance, overnight, we have the Chinese government challenging some of the monopoly powers in, in those companies. Uh, we have TikTok trying to figure out what's happening in the United States with its companies. We have more knowledge of what's happening with the vaccine. We have unknowns with how new president they deal with Congress. So there are all these factors we have to know. And then there's the ongoing onslaught of economic information. So we get economic indicators on how many job openings there are and you know, what the quit rate is, how many people are filing for unemployment insurance, what the consumer price index is doing. So you've got to put together all those pieces of the puzzle and it's like a big, huge crossword puzzle that you'd be putting together on the card table. And then as I, I've forgotten, I made that analogy, then you get it all put together at the end of the day, maybe. And then I go home and then come back the next day and somebody, <laughs> cleaning people come by <laughs> and manage to dump the entire card table and pieces all over the floor. So I start all over again. And that's kind of like what it is every day. But that's what makes economics exciting. I mean, I actually... I remember I was over in the business school library at UCLA doing some kind of homework assignment. And I have, there was a pamphlet over there from published by the National Association for Business Economists, which is the organization that has chief economists of all the major companies, everyone from General Motors to Amazon to Google. And I've, I've actually been president of that, of that organization and also head of their foundation. And there was a pamphlet that described careers of different people who had worked for companies or organizations as their chief economists. So I happened to read this thing. And I read about a gentleman who had been the chief economist for U.S. Steel. And he said what really like he liked about his job was that he came to work every morning and never knew exactly what he would be doing during the day. And I thought, that's the job for me. I want to be a business economist. <laughs> Sounds like journalism, but uh, I'd argue maybe you chose the better path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. So 
I think that's so cool that you also, you know, in your classes, you replicate that because as you said, every day is different. And so your classes keep up with the times. How have you sort of kept up with the, uh, the news of the pandemic as far as how it's affected the economy? Cause it seems like even that has been just, you know, day to day, month to month, just all over the place. Like, how do you, how do you view how the pandemic is shaping, um, What's going well, on every day is different, but and you read about different companies and different industries adapting. But what's been really very surprising is how well many companies have indeed shown their resilience and figured out how to survive in this environment. And also what's surprising is that we have the largest number of new companies being formed that we've seen like in a decade. So this is absolutely a, a sign of optimism in this country that people are saying, hey, you know, I'm not going to give up. In fact, this may be the opportunity to do what I've always wanted to do in my life and open up my own shop or my own business or my and go forward with my own ideas and my dreams. That's really interesting. I wasn't aware of that. I've heard people compare the economic downturn to the Great Depression or the Great Recession of 2008. Um, how, are you, how, how do you view it historically? Well, this is a very different downturn. It was extremely severe, but it was primarily confined to a couple of months. We started to see a, a rebound in, in May and June. And it was, whole, of course, helped by the stimulus funds that we saw putting $3 trillion in the economy really helps support incomes. And then, as I say, people kind of figured it out. Uh, so it's more like a shock, like you would see from a hurricane or a natural disaster, as opposed to the 2008 experience where it was a financial downturn caused by the boom and bust in the housing market are the more traditional recessions where essentially you have the economy overheat, inflation starts to heat up, and the Federal Reserve slams on the brakes, raises interest rates, and we're into a downturn. That's the typical recession. So this is a very different one. And we've seen the rebound has been actually very strong initially. We had GDP, you know, plunging in the second quarter and then rebounding at the third quarter. So down about a 30% rate, up more than a 30% rate. And so we've, we've seen quite a, a sharp turnaround. And now the question is, we're going through this potentially second wave of the virus, but then we see this light at the end of the tunnel where we have a vaccine that looks like it's going to be effective and out in the field and so 2021 could be very very different very much brighter and i think everyone is now saying yes there is a light at the end of the tunnel yeah it's really nice to hear that and even say that (laughs) (laughs) um so what did you think of the stimulus checks i know a lot of people you know were really happy to have that but there were also concerns about, you know, what that does to the national debt and what more stimulus checks could do. You know, how do you view that? And do you think more checks should go out? Well, the checks certainly helped immensely with sustaining people's income. We saw the saving rate jump dramatically 
it was over 20%. In fact, I, I show, showed this to one of my friends and he said, that's not American to be saving that much money. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we really did see uh, people uh, save a lot of money and, and banks are, they don't know what to do with all the money in their, in their, in their vaults. And then we saw people spend on home improvement, on you know buying washers and dryers and new refrigerators and all kinds of things for their homes. We saw the housing market boom. So the the checks and particularly the unemployment benefit increase that really helped us bridge the gap. Now we still have a ways to go. We're we're seeing we think we're like you know, we can almost reach the other side of the cliff. I know we've got at least two mountains and we're trying to get from one to the other one and we're getting close, but the bridge may not go quite far enough. And so that's why a lot of economists, the head of the Federal Reserve says we, we need some more stimulus, particularly for people who have lost their jobs and, and those we know in San Diego have been primarily in the tourist-related industry, the hotels, the entertainment venues, restaurants. Those are the ones, those face-to-face -face types of jobs who really suffered. You write these reports that are very influential in local policy, um, for the San Diego region especially, and I wondered which ones have you found most interesting as you are working on them as chief economist for the Romanian Business Institute at the Point Loma Nazarene University. Well, as background, uh, I do work as the, the chief economist and director of our Romanian Business and Economic Institute, and that is part of our business school, which is part of our university. And we're like a consulting firm, really. So we take on contract research for companies, nonprofits, government associations, and do economic analysis for them. And we do studies in all kinds of areas, from water to housing to the environment to city issues. So it's, it's a wide gamut of, of areas. And we always hope that we're, you know, again, making a difference uh, with, these, with these analysis. We do get in some, some policy areas where we try to be, we always are trying to be very objective and follow the data. We tell our clients they may not like the results and they can choose to tear up their report and no one will ever say anything, uh, but we, we will follow the data and follow the objectivity. We have the standards of the profession, our university, our personal integrity to be as objective and follow the data as closely as we possibly can. So one of the ones, I looked at the list of reports that you've done, and I just, I, I would love to understand, obviously I should take your class, <laughs> but I would love to understand, you know, we see these things in San Diego, like the economic impact of Comic Con's effect on all of San Diego. And one of the ones that I saw that you have worked on is, um, the economic impact of the Big Bay boom, which most people in San Diego should know as the big fireworks display that happens in the San Diego Bay every 4th of July. But how, I wondered if you could use that as an example to walk us through how you do an economic impact report. Like, how does that work? How do you figure out, you know, how, how do you total up what the impact is? 
Well, and that everyone is, is different, but uh, for that particular study, we looked at the impact of all the spending that goes on around the 4th of July. So for instance, the convention center is blacked out during that, that time, so there's nothing happening there. So we look at hotel activity and we measure again all the activity versus what would be in a normal time without the 4th of July period. So hotels, uh, we survey them, we survey the restaurants, we survey owners of boats who you know, would be taking people out on excursions for, for the July. So we survey all those people along that whole area where we see the impact of the Big Bay boom. And so we uh, get that information. Uh, we get a lot of information from the Port of San Diego, which gets uh, retail sales tax data from all of their tenants because they, they pay rent. So we have all that data. And then we, again, estimate uh, totally some of the impact that, again, that's just marginal just due to the fireworks as opposed to the regular times and then we look at all the we estimate how much of the activity is coming from outside the region as opposed to just inside the region because inside the region we're just stealing from one activity to another so we're trying to figure out you know how much activity is, is happening that otherwise would not happen if you didn't have the big bay boom do you think of economics more as a science or an art or a combination of the two? Because you're describing this and we're talking about numbers and like definitive things, but it sounds like there's also a lot of finesse there and decisions being made about how you go about your projections. So like, how do you think about it? Well, we, we make a lot of forecasts and we do make a lot of estimates. And, you know, one day I became very discouraged because, you know, the forecasts were not that accurate and there's a lot of judgment that goes into it and i was like you know why am i even you know being an economist this is just you know, way too fuzzy there's just too much judgment and guesswork well it's not we try not we don't usually call it guesswork but it is it's our judgment and sometimes it's just our best educated guess and i was so frustrated i was you know complaining to my brother about this, who's a, who's a physicist. And he said, you know, you know what? You know, he said, we have, and as physicists and engineers in space technology, we have to make a lot of estimates and a lot of judgment that's involved. You know, nothing is like pure black and white. We have to make a lot of estimates and assumptions. And then I began to think about it. Well, medicine, if you just think of it, have you gone to a doctor and they have one opinion, and then you go to another doctor and they have another opinion. So even the so-called hard sciences, there's a lot of judgment that goes into those fields. And so I kind of settled down and said, okay, economics isn't totally a hard science. It doesn't give me the precision that I would like to have, but maybe nothing in the world is totally precise. Before we move on to a little bit more about you, um, your housing report from 2015, we hear about that over and over and over again at the newspaper. I think politicians, you know, that is the issue, the housing crisis, homelessness, and, and your report in 2015 
which said that, you know, the cost of building housing and the cost of regulations amounts to about 40% of the cost of building housing. I mean, I think that's, it's famous basically in San Diego. So I just wonder, do you still um, keep track of that issue? And what are some of the things that you would say between 2015 and now, you know, San Diego should be focusing on in those areas? Well, that was one of the more massive reports we did. It, it took about almost a year to get all that data for that report. When we looked at all the costs involved from you know, permitting to time to the whole process of actually putting up a house. So that report has indeed continued to be significant. And what I was so happy with the release of that report was that it brought together people from all parts of the spectrum. Uh, before that time, and I guess it still exists, was a, a massive clash between the builders and people who you know, wanted less expensive housing. And those were, you know, mainly people in, in government. So there was just, you were either pro-builder or against builders. And the two just never didn't talk to each other. So after that report, you know, it was my hope that we would see these people, you know, come together and figure out if they could do this better if we could build more housing and meet our housing objectives and you know quit all of this fighting <laughs> and and indeed we we did see quite a coalition to come together and there seemed to be i talked to city council and there seemed to be a significant agreement both from liberals and conservatives that we had to find ways to help produce more housing at a, at a lower cost. And there have been significant improvements in regulatory process. There's two elements. There's the process and then there's the actual regulations, the cost of fees, et cetera. And both of those were at work, particularly the process. It just takes so long. So the city has tried to expedite that. But there are still big hurdles that builders have to go through. And part of it is just because nobody wants more housing in their area. In general, they want to see people have housing and they want it to be less expensive, but they don't want it in their neighborhood. So this is you know, a problem, particularly when housing issues go to the ballot. People just don't want to have more density and more housing. So this has been a problem and we've done work on the homeless issue and there it's as much of a housing issue as a social issue where we did a study on the underlying causes of homelessness and the immediate there's a difference between the underlying causes and the immediate triggers. You see people becoming homeless because they lose their job, they have a health expense that all of a sudden comes up. They can't meet their rent. But the underlying causes of homelessness are even more important. And it traces back to their childhood, whether or not they were abused. They had people in their family, their parents who were 
problems with drug addiction or alcohol problems and it kind of spirals into a whole issue of lack of education and then low incomes and mental problems which then ultimately develops into homelessness when all of a sudden they meet a immediate trigger or crisis that you know, most people can handle somehow but these people that have these backgrounds that have been damaged have extreme difficulty in handling yeah what would be your kind of current having been through that and seen all that and worked with the city council we have a new crop of city council members coming in san diego county is getting new leadership you know, what would be your advice um, to local elective officials in tackling that issue going forward? One, in, in terms of, of housing, we do need to build more housing in the county and the city if we want to, in fact, accommodate growth and we want to have lower housing costs or at least not the explosive growth and we want to have particularly more middle-income housing. The problem is middle-class people, for instance, school teachers, cannot afford a house anywhere near where they work. And so we need to pay more attention to housing for middle-class. Those are the people that are being squeezed out. We're subsidizing the low-income people, and we're seeing upper-income people able to pay, but it's the middle-income who that is really being squeezed out. And I think we need to pay more attention to those people. And then in terms of homelessness, I think we need a holistic approach. It's a issue of food security, housing, particularly education. We need to reach these people early in their childhood and find out who has a family household that's causing potentially could cause a major problem. So I think it, we need to look at it in terms of a much broader perspective than putting them in individual silos. And this is a housing problem. These people have a food insecurity problem. These people have a health problem, et cetera. Well, I'm sure we're gonna have many of those elected officials tuning into this to get your advice because they need they need some serious help <laughs> on this issue. Um, okay, so we we, we're doing a lot of research before this interview with you to find out more about you. And we were kind of looking <laughs> into- dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have, you, you are interviewed so often, so many people turn to you for advice, uh, but we also read in the, in the process that there are just not a lot of uh, women economists out there. And so we wondered, I actually saw in a New York Times article that since that, this is a direct quote, since the turn of the century, there has been no increase in the share of women entering the pipeline to become professional economists. And so we just wanted to ask you, you know, how have you, how has that been for you as a woman who is at the top of this field? And then, you know, what, what are those challenges that kind of makes it so hard for women in, in the industry? I don't know if I'm at the top of the field, but. Well, I chief economist at <laughs> multiple banks and at Point Loma Nazarene. Well, I, I, I think it's maybe not attractive to for for women for some reason i mean i 
I, I kind of ignored the issue when I was in school, uh, although if I think about it, I guess I probably was the only female in the class, but wow. that wasn't necessarily a bad thing, right? <laughs> 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 but it, uh, I mean, I think realistically, I just realized I had to work harder than anybody else, and I was willing to do that, and I did. And so that was kind of the way I survived the, um, the, the, the turmoil and you know I was passed over in positions and I and I kind of like well you know it's like if I had been you know him <laughs> I could have gotten him but I wasn't so you know I you know, pressed on and at the economist as I said I've been active with the National Association for Business Economists and you know initially there were very few women that showed up now you see a lot of women and we've had a number of women presidents and so uh I think we actually, at least in the in the business side, we are seeing uh, quite a bit of, of of change. So you've been the chief economist for Bank of America and Wells Fargo. That to me sounds like just an incredible position. You mentioned being a chief economist, you show up every day not knowing exactly what you're going to be doing. <laughs> so what did you do in those jobs? And and you know what were some of the biggest lessons for you? Well, I started out my first job uh, working for a bank. I was working on my doctoral dissertation. I got a, a call from a headhunter and he said, would you, uh, we have this position to work for a bank. And I said, I don't want to work for a bank. <laughs> They're the most regulated industry there is. Ooh. I thought, well, maybe I'll, 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 uh, I'll you know, I'm always the uh, Don Quixote chasing the, the windmills, right? He said, well, I'll change this. I'll, you know, I'll see if I can get deregulate this industry. So, and, and the headhunter said, well, you know, try that. you don't have to stay there forever. So I actually went there and I stayed in banking for a long, long time. So I, I started out my first job as a macroeconomics, macroeconomics. I was supposed to forecast GDP and the consumer price index and all these things. And my boss, he, he told me the first day that he was leaving in two days, so to learn quickly. Wow. Oh, so I didn't know any of this. I knew a lot of theoretical things, but I didn't know a lot of you know, how to find GDP and all these things. So, but I, you know, I kind of learned no, stuff. No pressure. Quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, you know, I worked in then international economics. I worked in then industry economics and at Bank, Bank America. Then I worked, uh, in their consumer part. So I get to talk about boat lending to boat dealers and auto dealers. And, and then I worked on a lot of the asset and liability for the treasurer when I was down in Florida working for a Florida bank. And then, uh, which then was bought by Bank of America. And then I worked uh, at the end of my banking gig uh, for asset liability management for the people who invest their money. So uh, we had high net worth people and then we had, you know, regular people like, you know, you and me. So that invested their money and figure out what's the economic background so that we could figure out should be investing in stocks or bonds or whatever. So I, I kind of, it was, it was great. I got to do really all kinds of things uh, for the bank and and learned a lot of different elements, which made it always interesting. Which, you know, as I, I have to be interested. I have to learn stuff, you know, every day. <laughs> yeah. 
I was going to say, can you help me with my fro on K? But I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we'll hang back after this. Sounds like you have some uh, advice for this. So we know that you're reading, you're researching, you're constantly curious, but we also read that you have done a hundred mile bike ride. <laughs> what else do you, yeah, what else do, you do for fun? Well, I haven't done a hundred miles for, for a little bit, but I, yeah, I, sh I should do one of those again soon. Uh, but yeah, I, I like to, to ride uh, bikes and I like to play tennis and I like to swim and I'm, uh, I like to, you know, read. Uh, I kind of force myself into our by into our book club, so I, I have to read something <laughs> outside of economics. <laughs> and um, and, I, and I'm interested in, in music. I'm trying to, you know, relearn how to play the the organ after playing as a, as, a, as a child. And as I said, I'm you know a member of the Spreckles Organ Society. But so. But I, I don't, I'm not really good at anything, which is frustrating to me. But, I doubt that. Um, I, but, but I'm... A uh, hundred miles doesn't sound like you're just okay. <laughs> no good at a cycling. Well, I wasn't really, I wasn't breaking any speed records, but I did finish. <laughs> That's amazing. So I am intimidated by economics. I think a lot of people are. So um, before we let you go... Um, I guess we'll have one more question after this too, but we just wanted to ask your advice on getting into economics, understanding it. You know, what would be your advice to someone who is not in college, not in high school, taking these classes to better feel like they can understand it and get involved with, you know, this day-to-day -day sort of uh, puzzle that you described? Well, I think there's probably lots of online classes you can take, which is great. You know, you can do that. And, um, I, you know, I, I wish you could take my class. I mean, I'm, I'm not a very good teacher, but I, but, I, but I do try to make it interesting and I try to bring it to life. And then I think, you know, if you, you know, have maybe just some basic understanding of it, uh, then you can, you know, read all the newspapers and, and, they, and, and, and the magazines, as I say, like the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, which have like little primers in there that, you know, can help you. So, um, I, as I say, you know, an online basic class in economics, I think there's lots of free ones now that are being offered. And then, you know, just start, you know, reading and understanding and listening. I, I'm sure that you're an amazing teacher. And it's something that we've forgotten to ask <laughs> you. Well, Abby's been in your class. She can confirm. But um, why did you want to teach? Well, I... I used to think that you know someday when I knew enough, I would be able to teach. I've never really got to that point, <laughs> but Point Loma said we would like you to teach. So I kind of like, well, all right, I'm not really to that point, but I you know I'm. I always like to, but I don't like to disappoint people. So I said, all right, I'll 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 do the best I can. <laughs> so I've been teaching. Um, okay, so our last question is, this podcast is called Name Drop San Diego. So at the end, we like to ask our guests to either name drop someone who maybe deserves more of a spotlight um, from San Diego County or someone who has been meaningful to your life um, and the person that you've become. So do you have someone you would like to name drop? Well, someone, you know, Abby, uh, Dr. Bob Brower, the president of Point Loma Nazarene University. Uh, he is an amazing leader and he's shown incredible guidance and wisdom during this whole pandemic crisis. So he's someone I would 
Doris, uh, that needs you know more recognition throughout the county. Awesome. Well, this has been really special for me as a Point Loma Nazarene alum, and uh, thank you so much for being with us. Well, congratulations to both of you for the fine work you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We learned a lot and we hope you did too. Now we'd love to hear who you think we should talk to next. Yes, this podcast is meant to help you get to know interesting San Diegans. And if you have someone in mind, let us know with an email to namedropsd at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search namedropsd. And if you really like this episode, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Yes, we certainly would. Thank you again for listening, everybody, and to Lynn for joining us. Our episodes drop every Tuesday, and we hope you'll join us for the next one. Bye!